right, guys, welcome to Inside the Unsigned. As always, I am Joe Deke. I'm OG, nigga. <laughs> Hell yeah, and we're on a brand new episode with you guys. Bring you our good friend, Mario Treviso. How are you doing, man? Good. I'm happy to hear my name pronounced correct. Hey. Uh, I've, <laughs> I've, been, I've been contemplating it all day. I was just like, okay, well, the Mario part, that, that's easy. But the last part, I was like, I don't think it's like a like a pizza like Izo. Like I don't think it's Itzo. I'm pretty sure it's Trevizo. So dude, that I was that. perfect. That that felt really good. <laughs> oh, props, props on Joe. Yes, yes. Uh, hell yeah, man. So uh, yeah, we. I mean, we've we've known each other for quite a long time. Uh, you know, we we've worked together a few times in the past. Um, you know, haven't like kept in touch here and there. But you know, we'll we'll get into like a little bit of what what you. Uh, uh we're doing and all that sort of stuff but um what like what what's going on with you right now like how how how, how are things down in uh north carolina uh, everything's cool um as far as living goes it's pretty chill because we're in the mountains beer city america uh so there's super awesome cheap prices for craft beer and the mountains are awesome the only thing that kind of sucks is that there's literally no metal well some would argue that there there is a metal scene but there's not a metal scene that i care for out here because it's very uh not similar to the kind of music that was you know in baltimore when i was up there so i feel like i'm going to atlanta and knoxville and charlotte a lot which is two to three hour drives everywhere to catch a show so that's been a pain in the ass but that is i'm committed the same thing man i drive two hours out to the eastern shore takes two hours to get to baltimore you said it takes two hours to get to baltimore yeah no oh for for orion yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I definitely feel your pain mario because uh going out to a show takes a, a good amount of time for me too yeah and i mean i'm i'm committed so I'll, I'll do it uh for sure and i mean i truth be told i drove up to richmond virginia which is a six-hour drive uh, a couple weeks ago to catch papa roach so yo papa roach is my one of my favorite bands like i'll do whatever it takes yeah shit i'd fucking go to that (laughs) hell fuck yeah and that's i mean that's that's really cool and like you know uh like as a band who's like in orion i know you you've had this before too where like people are driving like hours and hours, like just to see your band. That's such a, such a cool feeling for the band. And there, it doesn't seem like there's like enough people like that these days. Like I used to see it a lot more often, but you don't really see like too many like diehard fans who are going to be like, yo, I'm going to go to the show. That's like hours away. That's whatever. We'll make a road trip out of it. Sadly, I don't really see that so much uh, these days. Like it still happens, but it's not quite as, you know, as prevalent as it was and you know that's definitely one thing i i uh noticed and respected from you mario is uh i mean i could tell that you are just a legit fan of music but not only music but like the music scene so let's let's dive into a little of what you did so um you you started uh fans for bands uh tell us tell us tell the listeners uh kind of what that was and uh kind of your idea behind it yeah, so uh, Fans for Bands, really straightforward name. Uh, I didn't want anything to sound too complicated. I didn't want it to be like death music for life. I wanted like something that's like very uh, 
open-ended for anyone really like if you're a fan for any bands uh this is the community for you the idea initially was um i kind of got into the metal scene in 2003 when i was 13 um because truth be told i i uh i was going through a depression phase and people didn't believe me i was sad so i wanted them to believe me that i was a really depressed person and i thought depressed people only wore black listened to metal and watched horror movies so <laughs> i like that okay for christmas i had my parents get me the headbangers ball volume one and truth be told i hated every single band on that uh entire compilation it was like 40 bands i thought they all sucked they all screamed too much but there was like two or three bands i dug um and those were 36 crazy fists spine shank and um uh what was the one el nino and i thought those were like awesome bands so um after that i guess the next year in 2004 i discovered pure volume and so i was always on that site looking for new bands because i'm one of those people who's a little bit competitive and i want to it's not so much about being an elitist underground fan but it's about you know, if I'm going to do something, I want to do it really well. And I want to be educated in what I do. So if I'm going to be in the music scene, I want to know what's coming up, what's happening, who to look out for. And um, I feel like for years between about 2004, when I got into it to about 2008 to 2009, I uh, had just been so up to date with every band that was in the scene internationally and nationally. And, uh, you know, I'd always tell my friends, I'd be like, watch out for this band, they're going to blow up. And, you know, more often than not, all the bands I thought were going to blow up did blow up, you know, from bands like A Day to Remember, A Skylit Drive, Alisana, Bless the Fall, Chiodos, like all these bands I found when they had like demos out. And uh, I had no proof to show that I knew anything about them before they got signed or made any moves. Um so Fans for Bands originally was my platform to promote up-and-coming bands because what I noticed was every time you f I, I found a band that was underground, uh, if they stayed in the game, they weren't going to make any significant progress until about two years later. That's when they would get signed. That's when they'd get a booking agent. That's when they'd be doing any moves whatsoever. And I felt like in that two-year frame where bands small tours – it would be really helpful if somebody was in the scene who was kind of like making some noise for them so that people would start coming to their shows. Because when I started going to shows, I mean, a lot of the bands I liked, I'd be driving two, three hours away to be one of 12 people in a show and not that to be one of those 12 people, but I just felt like it was a discredit for these bands who are so talented to, you know, just be going so unheard for, you know, a couple of years. So that's kind of the goal behind fans for bands initially it kind of it expanded out to do a lot more things than i had originally anticipated but the overall goal in general was to just create a community of people that could uh basically trust what we were putting out there because i figured if i could show people that the bands i find are really talented and they're really worth a damn and they're like people to actually look out for then maybe instead of having to always get someone's attention and approval for what bands are going to be good, I could just put any band's name out there and people would just know to respect it because they would know that we have good taste. So that's the longer version of it all.
No, I mean, that's, that's fucking dope. Um, and I didn't know, like, you know, I knew like, you know, kind of the gist of what you're doing, but it's cool to see like the thought process behind it. Like, you know, all that was, you know, the initial intention and all that sort of thing. So that, that's really cool. Um, one thing that, so it, it was basically kind of just like a, I wouldn't say a one-stop shop, but it was more so, more so just like a, uh, uh, it, it, like it was almost, it kind of was just like a, like a, a promotional website or not website, but like a promotional thing more than uh, like a talent, talent buying or booking thing. Like you didn't start doing that until later. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think if I remember the timeline correctly, I started working for a venue when I was like the end of 18 to turning 19. Cause I remember there was like a really pivotal moment that had me jump into that scene. Um, but after I'd been working for a venue, which was Sonar, um, back in the day, I think by the end of the year or in the middle of the year, actually it was the middle of the year. Cause I had started the website for the first time in the middle of the year. And it was really underground cause we just had a MySpace website where I was just posting blogs. Like there was nothing really big happening. Um, and I was just kind of writing for some of these bands when, <laughs> uh, and, uh, but yeah, 2009 is kind of when it kicked off. 2010 is when we actually um, launched the website for the first time. And then I feel like we started getting uh, people to notice what we were doing in 2011. Cause I didn't, I didn't book my first show until March 6th of 2011, but we had basically been a working concept for like a year and a half prior to that. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, now, when you, when you first, like, did you have like any intention on like eventually like getting to like that sort of thing, like where you're like uh, booking shows and stuff like that, or like, it just kind of like, how did, how did that actually like suffice? I know you said you like uh, worked for Sonar or whatever, but when you were originally starting fans for bands, did you have any like future aspirations like to go on to do that or like, what, what kind of uh, like provoked you to want to, you know, dive into that field? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like a multi-layered question uh, as far as like the uh, answers I can give for that one. Um, so I'll try to be as concise as I can with the answer. Uh, but there's three parts to it, I feel like. Um, the first part was uh, my dream for working for a venue and my dream for doing stuff in the music community were two separate goals. Um, Cause when I graduated high school, I, I was one of those students who kind of like figured out early on that I didn't care to go to college. And I knew that if I did go to college, my parents were going to make me pay for it. So I knew right off the bat that if I gave an effort towards that, um, you know, it's pretty much not so much going to lead to nowhere, but you know, at that point in my age, everyone, says like oh go to college because that's what you're supposed to do and i knew that like i had gone to my first concert in 2006 which was when i was a junior in high school and i fell in love with it so i knew that i wanted to do something with music and um i just remember when i was at college at community college i was doing it just to make my parents happy and i had started uh me and my girlfriend went to this one really badass show at the auto bar it was like august burns red like first real full headline tour with like Skite's airplane and a skylit drive and uh i forget the other band but it was just a badass it was, tour 
Yeah, you know, I was at I was at that show with uh, it was. Uh, oh, this was the apocalypse. This, yeah, this was the apocalypse. Yeah, yep. that's who it was. Yeah, they were the opener, and uh, so we go to there, and I I remember I like at the end of the show, I was like a really social kid back then. Not that I'm not social now, but uh, there was a promoter just kind of passing out flyers, and I just make a conversation with him, like, hey, like, how'd you get involved with this? Why, you know, how do you work for a venue? You know, that, I didn't understand how any of that game worked up until that point, and. Uh, it was actually the promotion manager for Sonar, and he could just, I guess, tell that I was really eager to help. So he basically was like, here's my email. Hit me up. If you um, come through, you know, I could possibly help you get on a show or two here and there if you help us out. Uh, long story short, I started helping out every chance I could, and I'm just like an 18-year-old. I, I didn't go to Baltimore on the regular up until this point, so I mean – that was still like a scary move getting into the city by myself all the time. But I came through and eventually um, like within about close to a year, he had told me that there was a position for a paid, uh, there's a paid position coming available uh, for a promotions person. And they were like, he said, you know, if you apply, he's like, you're going to be like one of 20 people applying. And because you're underage, there's a good chance you're not going to get the job because you're not, able to get into all the clubs so i was like all right word um <laughs> you know i still tried it and i'll, I'll never forget it because uh the long basically what happened with the whole gist of that was uh he said he wanted to get us into 100 stores within a week or two and i had gotten them into 110 stores within three days uh because i hustled my ass off i went all over maryland and so he basically offered me the position I, uh, I, I was telling my parents I wanted the job and they said that I couldn't take it because I needed to finish the semester. And weirdly enough, uh, I went to a show at Jack's nightclub at uh, Springfield and on my way home, I was blasting my music and I get in the house and my mom's crying and she's like, your father wants to talk to you. And I go upstairs and he's packing his bags and he's like telling me you're going to be like the man of the house. You got to take care of the family now. And um, that just set me off because I like that's not the kind of person my dad is. So I bolted off, was driving down uh, a main highway, and this guy pulled out in front of me in a way he wasn't supposed to. And I hit him, and I thought I was gonna like I hit him real hard, like I t-boned him, and he spun out, and I he didn't get out of his car for a little bit. So I thought I killed him. I was convinced I was gonna go to jail or prison or whatever. Holy and, uh, shit! Yeah, like I like really was convinced. Like I just. <laughs> was over and i remember the only thought that really upset me was that i was living my life the way i absolutely wanted it i was doing it based on how other people wanted me to so that night i remember telling my dad when we got home and everything and the guy obviously didn't die i was like i don't want to go to college i have an opportunity to work a job that i want to work and i'm going to fucking do it and you can't stop me and i understand that you're scared that you know i might be setting myself up for failure but, you know, if I fail, that's on me. It's not on you as a parent. You did your part. I'm 18. I'm, it's my turn to make my own failure if I want to. And uh, long story short, I started working for Sonar. And uh, this is where the second layer of that answer comes into play. Um, so I've been working for the venue for a while. I'm, like, really enjoying it, making good money. I had made enough money the first year to go to a download fest in the uk uh which was a festival i'd been admiring for five years uh so i got to go there that was a great experience and uh 
in my journey of being in the music industry at venues, I was always talking to bands. And one of the things I noticed was that a lot of these bands weren't living the glorious rock star life I thought they were. A lot of them, like, you know, were so broke that if they lost a toothbrush or a toothpaste, they were just screwed for the rest of the tour. They couldn't, like, really invest that two, three bucks in the toiletries. I've been there. (laughs) Yeah, so I just took that to heart really well, I guess. And uh, I was just thinking to myself, man, what if there was a – what if there was a way I could raise money that would buy toiletries and things that bands run out of on the road and donate it to them, you know, just for the bands that need help? And – you know, one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to meet bands. So I was like, you know, that could be a cool platform. So that was an idea in the back of my head. And um, one of my dreams when I was thinking about promoting bands online was I always admired Kevin Lyman for Warp Tour. And I was like, I would love if one day I could put bands together and uh, get put them on shows that make sense and put locals on national tours that make sense because i feel like a lot of the shows i went to local bands were just getting on shows just to get on shows it didn't make any sense and uh a lot of those bands that were playing these shows everyone treated them like a local band they treated them like a band that just was the local artist that wasn't worth anything so everyone would go out and smoke and pay not pay attention to these bands and the local show would you'd be waiting for two three hours to get to the nationals and then you know, I don't know. It just felt like a. It just felt like there was a big disconnect in the scene that way. Um, so, getting into like, so that's kind of like the background of like how I viewed the scene. Um, but to get to what I try to actually do about it, um, initially, to answer your question, it none of it was really planned out. I just had ideas of what I think could have been improved upon in the scene. So, um, you know, the way I got involved completely with booking is i had been interviewing bands for about a year and i've been working for a magazine company amp and i've been meeting all these artists and interviewing them and i just i don't know i just realized i was like man i want to help out more i want to be less in the media side of things i want to be more on the hands-on side and i've been talking to this band sirens and sailors um because they had saw my promotional page and they saw that I was based out of Maryland and they just were their singer, Kyle Burley. And originally it was just hit me up to ask like, Hey, do you know anyone who can book a show? And he had been asking me cause he guess he found out that I had worked at Sonar. And so I had talked to the general manager and I was like, Hey, they're looking for this show on this date. How much will it cost them to rent the room out? could you guys pay them? Like how much could you sell tickets for? And I basically found, I basically found all the answers to uh, get a show booked without actually putting my name on the show. And after I gotten everything figured out, cause I basically spearheaded the project just to help Kyle out. Not a, And like, I originally I was kind of like booking the show through the venue just to help them. I didn't think of it as my own show. Uh, eventually the GM was just like, well, dude, you basically did the whole thing. You basically booked an entire show the way it's supposed to be booked. Would you like to put your name on it and be responsible for it? And if you make money, you make money. If you'd lose money, you lose money. And then I was like, yeah, sure. And he asked if I had a name for it. And uh, that's kind of how fans for bands got involved was I just was like, all right, I'll, we'll call it fans for bands first show. And so we booked signs and sailors and they were on a tour with call me the Patriot. And, uh, you know, I figured, 
you know, I'd always want to do that tour support idea. And so I figured, well, they're on tour. They're an up and coming band. No one knows who they are. Maybe I'll do tour support with them. And, uh, you know, basically like I had booked a show, I bought all these items. I did tour support and, uh, I recorded it. And a lot of people, I guess, liked that I did that. And, uh, moving forward, people just started basically offering a lot of things to me, I guess, like local bands because sky came burning was on that show and Lakeview was on that show. And, uh, some other band was on that show and, or a couple bands that weren't even in state were on it. And, uh, sky came burning really like liked what we did and was like, dude, you should do this. You should book another show. And next thing you know, I started booking and, uh, things just kind of came into place with that because like tour support had been getting a good response. So I wanted to keep that going. Us booking a show re was received really well. And uh, I feel like everything just kind of fell into place as I was doing it. Like I feel like different bands hit me up with different ideas and I kind of took ideas that people had and like try to figure out how I could help accomplish things in the scene for to help other people out. And uh, before you knew it, you were just kind of like one of the names in the scene underneath of Outer Loop and, uh, you know, some of these other big banger web, big banger companies, which was pretty cool because initially I was just trying to help out a band get a show. Um, and yeah, that's kind of like the, <laughs> the long version background <clears throat> idea of how this all came into place. That's cool how it all worked out for you, man. That was a very, very good story. I had no idea. Like you did so much work. And it all paid off for you. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, the reason uh, the community the community Collisions Fest first happened, which was, you know, a show you both were on, Kamisada that was and, awesome, by the and Dying Arms. Uh, it was funny because I, I, my second show ever, I think I worked with Carlos Rivas uh, with, from Within Wolves. And I think he was yeah. in a band prior to that called, like, War of the Lions or something like that. And... I thought, I yeah, the band that Toby and Carlos were in, like, I just saw them, and it was like three or four of them were all singing, and they were so damn good. And I, I had, I got into conversation with Carlos about like what his goals were in the scene, and blah blah blah. And next thing you know, he he said to me something like, "It would be really cool if for once local bands got to play on the main stage at Sonar, because up until that point, Outer Loop was the main company um, in the scene." And what they always did, and I'm, and I know you two have experienced this in your careers. Um, they would always have local bands sell 50 tickets for these festival shows just to play the club stage, and you know, just be like the local room, like the room that no one. I mean, your fans would care about it, but no new fans were going out of their way to really be in that room when there's like after the burial and like like Moss the Flames playing in the main stage. So. I was like, you want the main stage? Fuck yeah, we'll get you the main stage. And uh, that's kind of how that the move right there, clutch. What was that? Hella clutch right there. Say no more, I got you, fam. <laughs> no, yeah. It was, though. it was like, it was like, all right. And I told him, I said, I said, all right, well, how about this? If we can get all the local bands to sell 50 tickets to a to their own show, I will give them the main stage. Cause I was like, I'm not trying to like the thing that was tough about being a promoter in the scene, though, is, and I mean, I'm still, I, 
I mean, I, I know I have the unpopular opinion on this for uh, people to this day, but a lot of promoters have to do pre-sales and it's not so much, there's definitely bad promoters out there who take advantage of bands and like really rip them off. But I always did pre-sales because like the venue costs money and like, I just needed to break even. Um, so like, that's kind of like where my trade-off was, is like, look, if we get you these venues, like the main stage, or we get you on this national tour, like the costs are a little bit higher. So you're going to have to sell. And, you know, I feel like that was a double-edged sword back in the day because I was also a lot younger, so I was just worried about not owing money. Um, but now that I'm an artist as like a stand-up comedian, I kind of understand the game a little bit better in an artist perspective. So it's kind of interesting because yeah. I feel like I would run things a little bit differently if I was a booker now and still. But back then, you know, I was just trying to make sure we were all getting a good show and just getting a good venue and just having a good time. That's all it was about for me back then. Yeah, I could, I could definitely say, um, I know uh, you led that statement off with, it may be an unpopular opinion, but Orion and I actually, I forgot if we recorded it on one of the podcasts or if we were just talking about it, but um, like we, we definitely agree. We're, we're uh, in, in agreement with you about the importance of ticket sales. And one of the biggest, th like with the pre-sales that is, one of the like biggest things is, you know, you have to, it, at the end of the day, like, you're, you're doing this like this is part of your job too um and you want to break even or whatever but as a band you like be smart about it then if you're going to be having like pre-sale uh shows like that don't have a bunch like it lined up in a row because you know that doesn't help you have to be smart about your your show pickings and also don't be lazy that's one trend we've seen that's taken a like a horrible direction uh over the past like number of years is that like people or the local bands and stuff they don't promote nearly as hard as they used to and it's just kind of getting a little worse and worse like it gets okay at certain spots but you know the the promotion's not not there at all and then everybody's complaining the one time there's pre-sales and stuff like that i'm like that's that's like that's like an insurance uh for like making sure the show goes on or whatever like i remember like one of our very first shows or whatever we had to sell x amount of tickets and we didn't do so and there's like all right well uh you know you either have to pay to like you know the rest of the tickets that you didn't sell or you know you guys can't play and i'm already going to lose money off of this anyway um so we ended up paying them 300 bucks just because it was going to be lose lose like i didn't he was already going to lose money if we didn't play, but we were already there and we used all this gas money to play. So we're like, all right, fuck it. Well, let's, let's do the 300 bucks. And you know, that's, that's what people complain about. But at the same time, we, we could have promoted more. You can make all the excuses you want, but you know, there's a lot of different creative ways that you can, you know, promote your show, try and get, get ticket sales out there. Um, so yeah, that's, that, though it may be an unpopular opinion with a lot of people these days, uh i know ryan and i have both had that discussion siding with you on that yeah i mean like so it's a double-edged sword because uh on one end i totally get promoters who need to em enforce that and one of the problems i had as a promoter i feel like was i didn't give any real repercussions if people didn't sell their tickets it was more kind of like a guideline for what i was expecting 
but I didn't have it in me to like tell someone like, all right, you only sold, you know, 15 out of 25 tickets. I'm not going to let you play. And I also wasn't trying to like take all their money to like have them play. I just felt like that. I feel like that took away from the show. Cause if you're already on the flyer and you're already being promoted, um, you know, I don't want to punish your 10, 15 friends that did buy tickets and want to show up. Um, that's true. Cause I just think that's shitty, but it is definitely a necessary evil that um, is in place. And I think, I think the problem with the metal core scene is that a lot of the bands who are, or not anymore, there's not much of a up and coming scene as there was then. But back then, I think the problem was it was so cool to be in a band that you had people of all different younger age groups getting involved. I mean, as like, I loved, uh, like, I mean, for fear itself, if you really think about it, they were a high school band essentially just out of high school, barely in high school still. And, uh, you know, for them, I can, they were actually, they were super professional as far as tickets go. I can't give them one bad thing to their name at all. They hustled, but a lot of their friend bands that I remember working with, they were, you know, they acted like it, like any other high school band would act, which is, you know, they're just doing it for fun. They bring people out when they can. Um, it's not really, they don't see the business side of things. And I think that's the, where I was a little bit more picky with my booking. Um, I know that overall, a lot of people have a lot of good things to say about fans for bands. Um, I also am aware that there are some local bands that didn't have a good experience with us and, you know, they might've felt like we were unfair with, you know, not booking certain bands on shows, but the background vision behind what I had in my head was, like I said earlier in this whole conversation was, well, the problem I saw in the scene was that a lot of bookers were just adding bands just because they wanted to play, not because it made any real sense. At my shows, I wanted, if you're a local band playing with Sirens and Sailors or, uh, you know, this or the Apocalypse, no bragging rights, uh, whoever it was, I wanted your sound to make sense to the entire show. I wanted someone to come in and, you know, I know that a lot of bands hated being the opening band and no one ever wants to be that guy. And I get it. But my goal with bands being the opener and being a bigger name in the local scene was that I wanted the entire show to play very professionally. I wanted the first band to draw everyone in and be exciting. And then the next band be great. And the third band be great. And when people left my show and didn't know any bands besides the headliner, I wanted them to be like, like, who were all these guys who like, like all these bands sounded badass. So for a while we only worked with, I feel, or I think for our entire career, we only worked with what I would consider to be the best local bands in the scene. Cause um, I mean, that, I, I wanted there to be that professional sound. I wanted everyone to be stoked on being on the show. And, uh, you know, I wish, I think Spencer bands probably could have lasted a little longer if I might've been a little tougher about pre-sales and people selling all their tickets and stuff. But at the same time, I'm really proud of like what we did and what uh, we brought to the scene. And I, my goal was never really to, make a lot like any money off of it it was really just to keep the scene alive get bands who normally wouldn't come through maryland a place to come to because a lot of the bands that we booked were bands that 
literally no one would ever bring to Maryland. They are the kind of bands that would you'd see in Virginia or New York or Pennsylvania at the Champ or, you know, uh, Jack's Nightclub or, you know, Chameleon Club. You wouldn't really see any of these bands in Maryland. Um, so that's why I'm happy that we were able to give that platform out to the up-and-coming, you know, bands in the regional scene. Yeah, you, you definitely did a really good job, too. <clears throat> I actually had a question um, mainly going back to Collisions Fest, I wanted to know what was it like you as a promoter dealing with all these different bands and like, and me and Joe were talking earlier, all these bands are just caring about their show and what they're doing, but you, you had all these other things on your mind and things that were probably, you know, a lot more things to worry about. What was that like? Honestly, Collisions Fest was probably the toughest time in my life uh, at any I think in my entire life, I think booking Collisions Fest the first two years was the toughest. And it's not even because it was a lot on my plate as far as the booking side goes. Um, I mean, when you're booking a festival, you're basically pitching out this idea to a ton of different bands, a ton of different booking agents, and you're just trying to see who will bite. Like, you know, it's like, say I was trying to get This or the Apocalypse, Texas in July, Our Last Night, Before Their Eyes, whoever I was looking at. And I'd say, hey, for you guys, $600 if you come play. And this is the date I'm working at. And, you know, you send out all these invites and, you know, hoping people will bite and then kind of work your show around that. So initially it starts off being a pretty fun, like, what can I get game? Who will be interested? Who's heard of our company game? Like, who's interested in taking a chance with us game? Um, the stressors come in when people commit and then they drop off when you had already made the flyer or like when oh, yeah. local bands tell you like they've sold X amount of tickets, but then they don't, you know, they say they can't perform anymore or whatever. Like there's all those factors. But the thing that got me when I was doing it was uh, when I was at the peak of my booking, like I, I would always start booking in January, February and I'd solidify everything perfectly by May because the show, the festival is in June. And the problem I ran into was in April of both years of booking Collision Fest one and two, uh, my grandparents that I was closest to uh, ended up getting sick and were in the process of dying and then eventually died within like a two, three week time frame. And the problem was both times that they died each year. <laughs> Uh, I was at the point of no return with booking the festival. It was like, if I canceled it, I'd probably get myself blacklisted for, you know, confirming all this stuff and then dropping off. And then by going through with it, it was a tough thing. Cause it was like, I was kind of ignoring my family to like focus on my dream. Um, so to answer the question, I know a lot of bookers don't go through that same experience at the same moment that I did, but uh, I will say that booking can be tough because your life is still happening. And while you're still trying to play like the organize, the juggler of all the good and the bad and everything with your booking company. Cause I mean, there's always going to be shit that comes up. There's always going to be bands that say that they'll sign a contract saying they're, they're playing and they're not playing. And you have to basically do damage control and, keep everyone happy and make sure you don't lose your ticket sales. Cause like one year 
I had for my first, my one year anniversary show, I had booked ice nine kills on our one year anniversary show. And they ended up canceling because they got offered ice jam, which was two, three months later. And then another time I had, um, life on repeat on the festival and they had to drop off last second and i booked edema one time on the show and holy well, shit <laughs> yeah edema edema actually wanted to be on not collisions fest they wanted to be on the one year anniversary show because they had seen all this hype and all these bands had been talking about us at the time and like vanna had seen tour support and basically was throwing it everywhere and uh edema's booking agent was like yo can we get booked and i had to unfortunately be like nah like I don't have enough room because when you're booking a show, you got to think about your time slots. You got to think about your club stage and your main stage and who's going to be on what and like ticket sales and how much you're going to sell the tickets for. And if it's a price that's going to get you your money back, but also is it a price that's affordable for the people in your scene? Are, you know, are you going to get your flyer on time? Like there's so many factors at all at once that, uh, it can be pretty mind numbing, but I think, I think if you want it enough and you care about what you're doing enough, uh, anyone can do it really. I mean, I don't know. You know what's cool though, Mario, even with all that stuff you were saying, I remember seeing you for the last band of night at Collisions Fest and how much fun you were having, hopping on stage and literally jumping on, What's his name is back from uh, this is the apocalypse. So, like even all that stuff going on, you still had a fucking ball. Yeah, man. I mean, that's if you're gonna book a show, why book? I never understood why people book bands they didn't give a shit about. Like Facts. I, I kind of get I like I'm not trying to bash Outerly because they were definitely a band. They're a company that really provided for the scene in a way that brought all the bands I ever cared about towards our area. Like I, I can't really ever say anything bad about that company. They did so much good things. Um, but I do feel like I can kind of understand. Um, Cause I guess the main booker with them back then was like Tyler green. And uh, I can totally get why, you know, some of, some of the things that he did were just very business oriented because they were getting so many shows all the time that like it's kind of hard to keep the heartfelt joy in all of it when you're oversaturated i think the thing that we had going for us was we were i was picking the shows i was booking i was picking the bands we were bringing in i was picking the lineups that i was putting together and i was picking the local bands that were going to be part of the scene for our community because one of the things that i wanted was um one of the things that like was really important to me for building our community was I knew that my friends personally in my personal life weren't big fans of metal. They weren't big fans of metalcore, punk rock. Uh, they were, it just wasn't their thing. But every time they hung out with me, they had a good time. So my idea was like, well, what if I can create a show that's so fun at all times that it doesn't matter what you listen to. You just know that a fans for band show is going to be a fucking party. Like, you know that like the community fun community to be around so i remember when i started booking shows like i would always make it a point to introduce all the bands to each other i'd always be like hey look this is Kamisato. this is you know what mike from no bragging rights or blah 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 like i want everyone to know who each other were and then i'd always be like my name's mara this is matt if you have any questions feel free to ask us we're going to be walking around the whole show 
if you need something, this, that, this, that. And uh, same thing with the fans. Like I would always try to be at the front doors when people were bringing tickets in. And I would always ask people like, who, Hey, who are you here for? Who are you watching? And if there's people who was here for the headliners, like us from outside or life on repeat or whoever was playing, I would always be like, Hey, let me introduce you to the band. Like, let me show you what's up because whether you were the headline band at our show or you were the opening band at our show, I wanted everyone to feel like they mattered because they were on that show. And I wanted everyone to feel connected in a way I wanted everyone to like become friends. So that way, next time this is the apocalypse came into town or life on repeat or in dying arms or whoever was playing honor crest. I wanted everyone to be like, Oh, I, I know those guys We're friends. They're really cool. I had a drink with all of them. Like, I want to go to the show just because they're going to be there. Not even because the music, just because they're cool ass people. And, you know, that's why we'd always try to encourage, like at some shows we'd buy drinks for everyone and do a shots and stuff. And then other times we would just invite that. people to a party. Like, cause the whole goal was fans for bands, all about community. Like we're all one unit. Like, yeah, everyone, there's different levels of people because, you know, some bands are signed and some bands are touring, but at the end of the day, like when you come hang out with our crew, it's going to be fun. And that's why I never really blacklisted anybody. Um, but there's definitely bands that I didn't continue booking. And there's definitely bands that I wouldn't book because I thought they had shitty attitudes. Like, I don't know if it's okay for me to name drop, but one band that in particular that I liked their music and then they just pissed me the fuck off. You might as well go ahead. Uh, was the paramedic like the paramedic did a tour with a failing sky and sirens and sailors and i was so stoked to meet them because i thought they had a modern day still remains sound and i was like yeah they kind of did yeah and i talked to them and the they they just act like they were rock stars and they were just dicks and i asked them if they would sign stuff to do some giveaways for the things i try to get them involved with meeting some of the fans and they were just such dicks and i just like was like I, I, i'll never book you guys again i don't care how big you get i can't work with you because you're not a community band well but, karma hit them in the ass i don't think they're a band anymore rest in peace <laughs> i i know I've, I, I've like i recently saw like something but like it's just one of those things where like one of the members is like yeah we still got stuff going on but i haven't heard anything yeah, um, he's bullshitting. <laughs> but uh, I will definitely back up uh, what you were saying. Um, for sure, uh, when you were saying, like, hey, who are you here to see? Uh, check out these bands. Not only did you do that to, you know, the fans that were coming in, but uh, just like you said, you're doing it uh, to even the local bands or whatever. Like, you're just like, hey, uh, I don't know if you guys heard of these bands coming from, like, Virginia or wherever they were coming from. You do it. You do it for us. Like it, it was really cool. And like uh, around the time, like what was that? Like 2011, 2012. Yeah, I think I think that's when the Maryland music scene was so was so like tight and community oriented. Where like you know, obviously, uh, In Dying Arms and my band, we had been brother bands for a long ass time, so we already knew each other. But even there, like we like we had tons of other friend bands that. You know, we'd hop on some shows that they're friends with and, and vice versa. And it kind of spread, like, it literally spread from, like, Maryland. And you could kind of started to see that happening in uh, PA. And, like, some people even from PA would drive all the way down, 
like people who would usually go to the champ shows, they'll, they'll come down and see one of the uh, Maryland shows just cause like the community had really like, you know, extended beyond Maryland. And it was really cool. So you had like this tri-state, however many state, uh, you know, expansion of, of a community. And I think that's, that's really cool. Um, and one of the biggest factors uh, behind that, uh, you know, obviously things that, you know, uh, people like you did, but also there was that like, you know, there wasn't so much of a weird like sense of competition among the local bands and bands in general, like everybody was like encouraging each other and like, we're super stoked if you saw one of your friend's bands get signed or, you know, get on this really big show. Like there wasn't like that much jealousy where, you know, kind of these days it almost seems like it's a competition and like, there's like, yeah, I don't want to be on a show with this band because we have beef or whatever. I'm like, what, what the fuck? Why? Like <laughs> you guys are playing music and it's very similar. You guys could share similar friends and fans. What, like, why the fuck is that happening? So that was a huge thing that was, you know, definitely cultivated in that community collisions. Like, oh, that was great, man. I, I fucking love that show. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people who are still in bands or people I've run into here and there. Uh, it's funny because a lot of them, the two shows they remember the most are Community Collisions Fest and the uh, one year anniversary show. Because, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm. It's I'm not upset that I'm not in a scene anymore and I'm not upset that I'm not booking anymore and I'm not doing certain things because I definitely enjoy uh, kind of what I'm doing now as like a comedian and, uh, you know, just being a super fan and just kind of keeping the music alive in my own head. But um, one of the things that I did like when I was doing it was I felt like I definitely gave it 100% effort. Uh, one thing that I don't think a lot of people knew is that for the one year anniversary show that had this or the apocalypse, no bragging rights in dying arms, uh, sirens and sailors, and like just a handful of all, I think the best local bands we had to offer. Um, I had actually, I had wanted that show, the one year anniversary show to only be bands that we were best friends with, uh, that we were closest to. It's kind of like a celebration of like, Hey, you're all the bands that played all of our shows or you're the bands we got closest to. I want you all to be together. And, it was pretty doable for everyone that I picked besides no bragging rights, no bragging rights had done tour support. I'd, I'd offered tour support to them like two or three times. I'd met them like five times and I made a joke with them at one tour. I was like, Hey, if I flew you out to Maryland, would you play a show? And they were like, if you fly us out to Maryland, we will play a show. And secretly, uh, no one really knew this. I, it, cause it was kind of my own deviant plan. I was working a minimum wage job at the time and I worked 60 hour weeks for three months straight and I raised enough side money, which is like fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars And I used my money to fly every member of no bragging rights out. And I got it, uh, a deal where they would, uh, gear share with this or the apocalypse. And, um, so yeah, I flew no bragging rights out to play this special show which I think is badass because at the time they were such a low key band that no one would do that for a band their size ever. You know, no, no one does that. And I felt like that'd be a cool story to tell. Um, and besides that, 
they debuted two songs live that they had never played live before. They also let me pick their set list for our show. And on top of that, um, they had one song that had a guest vocal spot by this band called Destruction of a Rose. And the thing is, they never played this one song live because the guest vocal part had a singer that hit such high and low notes that nobody could really guess for his part. So what we did was we asked Sirens and Sailors, uh, Kyle Burley, who has a huge range of screaming, and we said, hey, can you learn this part? And would you be down to help them debut this song live and you do the guest vocal part? And um, I, I mean, one of the things about that show is I got so obliterated that I don't remember half of it. A lot of my memories are from people reminding me what happened, but uh, it is cool to me that we flew them out. Kyle guested on this song that has never been played. I don't think they even, I don't think they ever played it since our show. And uh, I don't know. That's just, that's something you don't hear about in the music scene. You don't hear about a no name promoter flying bands out to play a, fun show that's a big feat right there man like that kind of blows my mind <clears throat> you're, you're you're one of a kind mario i respect that <laughs> absolutely um and one thing uh i mean i i was kind of thinking about it like throughout this podcast and like what you what you're saying i know uh like before when we were just randomly catching up like a few months ago or whatever you had mentioned a little bit of something but uh you know if do you do you have any like interest of getting back in the game like is is that something that you may want to do down the line and i guess if so what what do you think you would do differently um that's a tough call uh just because it's a tough call cuz there's definitely always going to be a sense of pride that i have in the scene and there's definitely um it's nice knowing that I, there's a knowledge behind um, it's nice knowing that I have the knowledge to, to understand how this game works because I had to kind of teach myself how the industry worked and I had, and you know, you got to kind of create your own standards, um, to make it work for yourself. Um, but the thing is, no matter how much knowledge you have and no matter how, um, committed you are and passionate and no matter how much money you have even like even if i had infinite funds to do really cool things um a lot of it is really dependent on how the scene is because what makes a scene and a lot of people don't want to think it but the thing that makes us a good scene is having good local bands that are playing having uh you know a community of people that are regularly going to these shows. Cause I mean, when I went to shows, people recognized me all the time, not because I was a booker, but because they were just like, I see you at all the shows. I see you at every metal show. I see you at every, you know, punk show. Like, you know, we kind of knew each other because of our faces of just being supportive. And so on one end, I want to say that, you know, it'd be, yeah, it'd be cool to get in the game and be cool to do some cool things again. But like you were saying, I mean, the scene was at its prime in 2011 to 2013, which is honestly the, the time frame that we were in it, you know? And I feel like, I feel like we kind of did what we could. And when it was fading out, we kind of got out of it. Cause I mean, one of the biggest factors of it all was uh, the flexibility that our scene had. We had a ton of venues to work with. We had a ton of cool spots for 
bands of all sizes, you know, Sonar, Autobar, Record Theater, uh, Bourbon Street. And with Bourbon Street and Record Theater and Sonar all shutting down, that took a huge blow on everything because when I was booking, I could I could book a show as within a time frame of a month and a half and get away with it. Um, but Autobar being one of the only venues that really supports that kind of music these days and Metro Gallery, which I've never actually worked with, but, you know, and I think the Raven Inn or something like that, these three low-key venues that are like, you know, they're on, by us losing all our, our venues, they became on such high demand. Like Autobar, I, I would have to book three months in advance to even get a show. And a lot of these tours aren't getting off. When I was in the game, they weren't getting offered to me until about two and a half months out. So I didn't even have a time frame to book anything when I got them offered to me. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it. That's why I'm not trying to like delay on my response, but. Uh, no, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel you. Um, yeah. I mean, that's and Orion, Orion and I definitely have touched on this before. And, and I think anybody who was around in that scene, uh, like at that time, it's like definitely prevalent or like a huge, a huge thing that, all these, you know, venues were like shutting down or turning into EDM uh, clubs or whatever. Like everybody was just, you know, there's there's really nowhere to play. Like I said, except uh, for Autobar. Like that was, I still consider that one of our hometown venues. But you know, Wrecker Wrecker was that one where you can, you know, book yourself and like do it on Sundays or whatever. And you know, that was that was really cool. And you know, it's those sort of opportunities aren't there. Like being back in Maryland now, I see like a little bit more, but it's still nowhere near like saying, all right, cool. Like they're always like kind of weird out of the way sort of venues. They're not like, Hey, cool. Let's go to Sonar to see this local show. Like the same, the same venue that you also go to, to see some of your favorite side bands come through. Like you don't see that anymore. Yeah. And I mean, um, I, so to answer the question real shortly, um, I have thought about coming back, um, but if I did come back, I don't feel like um, I would go the booking route just because there is a lack of a scene. And um, I, I don't really, I wouldn't say that I really understand how to create a scene. I think I have always been good at maintaining the integrity of our scene and helping capitalize on its potential. Um, I would say I'm comfortable with. Um, I don't know if I would say I feel comfortable cr helping create a scene again, but um, coming back, one of the things that I liked that fans for fans had was we were multi-layered as far as like doing interviews, doing press kit services, uh, promotions, booking and tour support. Um, I think one of the things that was the downfall of fans for bands, not so much even, I don't want to put a lot like much blame on the scene because the scene was, you know, pretty decent when we were in it. Um, but I definitely, as a, as a human spread myself really thin because um, even though I had my partner, Matt, who helped out a lot with like discovering a lot of bands and um, you know, just being uh, involved with what we were doing and being a good person to bounce ideas off of when it came to the operation side of things, I was, 
very much like a one man show. And uh, with all these layers and all these things that we were doing, you know, it's the kind of job that I think a team would need to be behind. And so coming back, I think if, or if I were to come back to do anything, I think I, the most interest I would have is resurrecting the idea of tour support because I know how to make it work. Um, I found websites since I've left the scene that I would be able to like do that idea a lot more affordably. Um, but um, I would definitely want to be involved with the team more so than being like a one man person. And I think a lot of the, the one man show definitely also came with having a little bit of an ego when I was doing it um, because I definitely liked being, um, I like people knowing that I was the one operating everything. I like people knowing that um, I was the one behind it all. But the thing that I didn't realize back then was in order to find, to grow and to have more success, uh, it is something that would have required a team effort. So I think that's the one thing. If I were to come back, I would want to set in place uh, a group of people that were as passionate as I was to get involved and like really kind of iron out a system for what we wanted to create. And, you know, whether I was the mastermind behind the whole thing and everyone else helped me do operations, um, I think that there, there would be a little bit more thought required to get it all up and going again. I wish you all the luck with that, though, man, because uh, Maryland needs it pretty damn bad. <laughs> yeah. The um, and one one thing, one thing I, I'll uh, kind of backpedal with uh, the first thing you were uh, talking about, as far as uh, you know, there needing to be, or like you know how to maintain a scene, but you're not quite sure like what would quite respark or rekindle a scene. Um, one thing that like I notice. Like even I, like Orion and I were just having a conversation on the phone the other day and it's really hard to even like think of any, I mean, there's a few, but like really like quality uh, local bands or like unsigned bands in the area that are like, you know, really taking it seriously. Like I said, there's a few exceptions, but, you know, having some good uh, strong acts to create a scene around that would help like for sure so um i'm not saying because like <clears throat> around the same time that like i'm not saying that like this is like any indication of why the scene died or anything like that but or at least as far as maryland goes but um you know around that same time uh in arms got signed they weren't playing as many local shows anymore and they were touring a lot more so like you know it wasn't as often that they were coming uh, we were getting similar opportunities. We weren't signed uh, yet either, uh, but, you know, we were getting chores uh, uh, and stuff like that. Um, you know, I, the breather came up. Well, they just kind of like showed up and got signed right away. And then uh, they, you know, they did their thing. But, you know, a lot of the really strong local bands that were in the scene, um, you know, they either gave up or, you know, went on to do, other things and you know kind of left a void for a while and that void never like you know resurfaced like n n nobody ever really <clears throat> seemed to take it seriously it seemed to you saw a lot more bands like giving up rather than like you know sticking with it and like getting to the grind and 
you know, if you see that like these venues are shutting down, then that's obviously not a good trend. Like, so, you know, do like, you know, keep trying and keep like making sure these shows get filled out. And uh, I didn't, I didn't really see that, um, you know, towards the later years of, you know, the scene sort sort of uh, taking a turnaround. You know, I see that kind of makes me like wonder though. Um, I remember back when we were all coming up and like you were saying, Mario, these high school bands were doing their thing. I'm not even seeing too many high school bands. I know they're out there, but I think they're, they don't know what to do with the lack of venues. To be honest, most of the bands in the scene are people who came up when we did and they just formed new projects and they're still here trying to do their thing. I'm not seeing too many high school bands. What's up with that? Yeah, and I agree with you. Uh, I mean, I th- I think that a lot of the bands in the metalcore, when it came to local bands, uh, they were kind of like on the Tony Hawk syndrome, which is when Tony oh, Hawk. That's, that's brand new to me. Hell yeah! What was that? That's that's a brand new term. Bring it on. Well, what I mean by that is just that, like the Tony Hawk syndrome to me is, um, I don't have a a skill in my body to skateboard but when tony hawk was cool and all the skateboard companies were popular like etnies and bill or uh, you know volcom and billabong and lakai and ipath and all that everyone had a pair of skate shoes everyone had tried skateboarding at one point skating was cool and it's just everyone was doing it i mean that's why so many kids remember the dc video because when that dvd came out everyone fucking had heard about it and i think when, with metal bands a lot of you saw a lot of younger bands coming up because it was cool to be in a metalcore band like if you played in a band and you had a few good songs and you fucking had some good breakdowns and some good riffs like yeah you could be opening up as romans or you know whoever like you could be book, working with like alisana and emure and, and stick your guns and you would just be playing with like real legit bands if you just tried. And um, it's not, I don't think it's, I think it's a lot of everything. It's not so much just the, the venue shutting down. I think it's like not seeing it be that cool anymore. Like, because being in a band was never easy. Like if you're, if you're going to be in a touring band, it's never been an easy, fun thing to do. Like it's fun in its own ways for sure. And I mean, I know that you have more of an experience that I will n- never really relate to. I can't even really speak on, but when you really gut it for what it is, you know, um, it's a tough life. It's, it's, there's no easy way around saying that it's like, there's, there's a lot of fun things about it, but it's a tough way of living, especially as an adult. Um, and I think that when kids realize it's not as cool as it seemed like it was, I think that, and the reality of like, hey, it's going to be really tough to be in a band, and now it's going to be even harder because you're one of few bands that are even in your scene. I think it makes it a lot less attractive than when it was when everyone was in a band and everyone had a good EP and everyone was, you know, doing it because there was, you know, back when there was Ice Jam and uh, Scream the Prayer Tour and, uh, you know, Slaughterfest. Uh, Summer Slaughterfest and um, Thrash and Burn tour, like all these tours that were geared for up and coming bands and your chance of possibly opening for it. The possibilities were so endless. You know, 
you could if you played well in a band for one year i mean the chances of you playing with a bullet for pretty boy in texas in july like moss the flans memphis Night fire every one of those bands was such a possibility but now if you want to play with any of those bands you better be goddamn good and that's kind of a scary thing i think for a lot of people who uh are trying to be in bands because everyone has their own reason for getting in a band, you know, I'm not going to discredit and say people don't do it for the music, but I feel like a lot of bands also did get involved in a trendy way uh, without trying to be mean about it. And I think that's kind of why you, we've seen such a disappearance in it all. No, I, 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 can, I can agree with a lot of that. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely get your point. And uh, it's actually a really interesting point. I never thought about like, the Tony Hawk syndrome. I was new to that term as well, but uh, yeah, I mean, that does make, it does make a lot of sense. Um, and like, it does seem like, you know, I, I mean, it, it's also like kind of a, it is a good thing uh, a little bit that like, it seems like the trendy thing now is to like, just be a really big fan of music, but you don't really see many people actually like, trying to like make music like as much as before but like now now it seems like people are just like really mo mostly about listening to the music but still that part's cool but at the end of the day are you guys going out to shows um you're definitely not going to local shows because if you were there'd be scenes. but at least they're listening to me like music a lot more and like people seem to be a lot more invested in a wide variety of like bigger bands but again it's all about like figuring out some sort of way to like get these local bands like up, like to be honest, and uh, Orion uh, has shit on me a couple of times about this, but like, uh, I'm like, I, I still like find myself listening to like, like older stuff. Like I'm horrible at listening to like even new bigger bands or whatever. Like I, I just now started listening to Dayseeker. I know they've been around forever. Um, and I just, today I went on this whole like, pop punk uh little kick or whatever and i found all these bands that everybody everybody's been telling me that i would like and i just never listened to it and i finally did but um so again it's there's there's a lot more uh platform for people to like actually get new music and listen to bigger bands but like you know the the small like the smaller artists who are trying to like build up build up their name and stuff like that it, it's a lot more difficult yeah, I think it's cool though. Um, it's always cool to jam the old stuff, but um, just how music's so much more attainable now with all these streaming services. There's a lot of good stuff, and if you look for it, you can find it. And just like with what you just said, I feel like a lot of people might feel that way, and that's also a, a whole other factor why a lot of newer bands who are good probably aren't catching the steam because you know the scene's just not what it was and people don't want to even take the time to look for some good bands they just they already know what they like you know what i mean oh it's for sure it's all good though you know we'll see what happens in in, in the next wave of metal <laughs> let's see what happens i mean yeah. one of the, one of the things i've been trying to do and i mean it's not anything that's progressive but spotify is definitely like a great platform for getting onto new bands and the thing that i like the most about it is by having the accessibility to everyone's music. Um, I love making new playlists all the time. Like I'm always making a new playlist that has a different feel to it, whether it's like more of a, 
old school emo feel or a new school metalcore or an old school metalcore. Uh, I find that interesting. I feel like if I had been as involved as I am with Spotify now, I could have probably done some cooler things with promoting bands um, that were coming up because I would be able to make all these badass playlists for shows that we were promoting. Um, but yeah, it's tough. It's really tough to say because I mean, the the question isn't so much, you know, the people who are passionate about music are always going to be passionate about music. Like today I die until I get deaf. I mean, I'm going to be going to the metal shows, but uh, like a lot of people go in and out of what they do. Like a lot of the people that we knew who were in the metal scene did get into EDM and a lot of people got into EDM eventually got into Mumford and Sons and, you know, not <laughs> saying anything against them, but like people just, they're like, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's the, the shittiest thing I think I can say about all of it. And I could be a hundred percent wrong, but this is just me basing off of observation of watching people be people is, um, a lot of people follow a system that's set in place for them. And I'm not saying that everyone turns their back on bands, but you know, if you think about how many of your friends did the college route, you know, you go to school your whole life, then you get up and go to college and then you get a job and you get a house and you get this and you never really lose your hometown and you never do, you know, you stick to a plan. And I feel like people kind of progress the same way with music. It feels like, like, they they did their teen angst emo phase and then they did their metal phase their rebellious metal phase and now they listen to like mature music or whatever and i don't know i just feel like a lot of people follow trends and uh i think that's why for people like you me and ryan like i feel like there's always going to be a little bit of a disconnect because like i'm never going to turn my back on my favorite bands and i know you guys probably aren't and i mean following the trend was never the thing at least for me at least and uh i feel like that's kind of i i can't say that's the overall factor but i feel like that is a factor of people in general like people go in and out of phases and uh only a handful of people actually stick with you know the bands they grew up loving and stay supporting and stay going to shows and that's what's tough is like because we're in a more mature state of mind and we can see things in a new perspective that we didn't even see seven years. Um, we're still interested in the same scene. And so it's kind of weird seeing everyone move past that and us wanting it to still stay alive. You know, I feel that 100%. And it's funny you mentioned the trends because me and Joe talked about this before. But even with the, the bands and, and the music, everything is so much faster now. Even outside of music and technology and everything that they bring with music and the streaming. And like we've talked about the trends with music that local bands want to do with these heavy routes. And I remember when Gent was coming up, you know, that's cool. And then it's like this beat down type of deal every local band is trying to do. And it's always something new every year or two. And back, back when we were coming up, a lot, of the same, a, lot, a lot of the same type of things were, were hot for more than just a year, and it's a lot faster now. It's, uh, kind, of, it's kind of hard to keep up sometimes. Yeah, definitely. It's wild out there, man. So what kind yeah. of bands are you jamming to nowadays? I'm curious. Uh, the band that – the number one band that I think is the best band on the planet currently – 
is Polaris from Austin. Oh, they're great. Yeah, yeah. I actually saw them a couple months ago at the auto bar with uh, Gideon. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that's uh, they're they're like my number one. Um, I would say Kingdom of Giants has definitely made their mark on me. I've I mean I've been seeing them for years, but I haven't seen them live yet, unfortunately. But I've I've been listening to them for years. But their latest album was just like disgusting good. Um, but some of the other bands that probably people haven't heard of that I'm into, there's this band called Now and on Earth. Um, they're super dope. Uh, there's this band. I don't know if they're from France or not. I know they're a European band, but they're called Landmarks. They're really cool. They're like really aggressive, but really uh, catchy melodies. Um, one band that I have been listening to, but I, uh, I didn't even know that I had booked their singer in a band previous before. Uh, there's this band called Northern Ghost. And oh yeah, they were on. They're on the same label I was on before I broke up. Uh, Tragic Hero, they're cool. Yeah, they. Uh, their lead singer used to be in a band called Set to Reflect, and they played oh, one yeah. of my shows back in the day. That's cool. But um, they're good. Uh, I really like Jesse from Era. His, I mean, I like Era a lot right now. But Jesse's band Ghost Atlas is super awesome in my opinion. Um, but a couple other names just to throw them out there for people is. I would say Thousand Below is making a name. Vesta Collide is looking good. Um, Thornhill from Australia. And I would say Speech Patterns and a band called The Wise Man's Fear. Oh, we toured with them two years ago. These are awesome guys. Yeah, they, they, I just started listening to them recently. They're super dope. And as far as like signed bands go that are like, not really huge on the on the market, but bands I think are definitely worth shouting out. Is uh, super stoked to see my children, my brides come back tour. Uh, super excited for that one. Um, but beyond my children, my bride, I am really digging that band Secrets, which is interesting because when they first came out, I literally hated everything about them. I thought they were, <laughs> I thought that they were the most generic ripoff version of everything that was out there and i honestly thought that i just thought they sucked and uh i kind of started listening to them last year and listening to like everything that they put out in the last year or so and i can honestly say that i am addicted to them right now i think that their music is actually awesome and the band the songs i used to hate actually love right now which is really weird because Normally, if I don't like a band, I don't normally start liking them again. Uh, like, like it's funny. Uh, when Asking Alexandria lost Danny and they came out that album with uh, Dennis, dude, yeah, I thought but- that album was gold. And then when they got Danny back, I, like, actually didn't care for them again. <laughs> so it's weird um, how that works out. Like, well, it's not too amazing. To, it's not really that good, in my opinion. I, lo- I honestly love it, but... What so you like? You like the new Asking Alexandria? Yeah, I fucking love the new. There's Asking a couple Alexandria. of jams I can get down with, but all in all, I mean, just me. Like, there, there, there's some, there's some songs I'd be skipping on that bitch. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I just liked, I liked Asking Alexandria for like the aggressiveness that they brought. Because I mean, I, I was there for like one of their first American shows, uh, back in like '09. It's funny. Uh, this is a fun fact that 
I don't brag about this ever, but since we're on here, I might as well say it. Back <laughs> back in 2009, it was like September 9th, I believe, 2009. Um, I'd just been like doing band promotions for fans for bands in a more official way. This was before we launched the official website. It was on MySpace. And we had done, what we would do is we'd, we'd promote five bands for a month and I would write a band bio about all five bands and like really push them. And one of the months we did No Bragging Rights, uh, Broadway, Asking Alexandria, this band Halo Scene and another band. I think it might've been like Mosta Flames because like Mosta Flames was just, no, it was Miss May I. That's who it was. And Miss May I and Asking Alexandria had released their first albums on the exact same day. And the thing that was interesting was back then, nobody knew who Asking Alexandria was because they were just, you know, these English boys in America. And we had put them on our top eight, the Fans for Bands page, and they had put us on their top eight. And then when I had met them in uh, Allentown at the Crocodile Cafe, they were playing with Alisana and Broadway for their first tour. And both Broadway and Asking Alexandria had recognized the name fans for bands. And that was the first time we talked. And I mean, we didn't stay in contact or anything at all, but it's kind of cool. Cause I was like, I was like, I remember talking to uh, Danny and being like, I think you guys are going to blow up. And he was just like, Oh, you know, we're just trying to talk back. I might blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah. And then they blew up and I was like, I don't really have proof that this happened because MySpace is like gone. But I was like, we were, we had this conversation where I told them they were going to blow up and they did. So that was kind of cool. If you remember um, your old MySpace URL, there's a way to like certain times it doesn't work, but uh, I think there's this thing called waybackmachine.com or whatever. And you can see like, like screenshots of like old like websites like i did that for Kamisato a few times and i could see some of our like earliest like myspace layouts and shit like that it's pretty cool so uh you might be able to might be able to get into that it's called waybackmachine.com but i haven't checked that in like a year or two but it definitely was uh was collecting some of that data why uh none of us knew yeah wow that's that's pretty cool yeah so definitely definitely check that out but um yeah i mean i know uh a lot of this conversation has been, uh, you know, geared towards, you know, your, the fans for, for bands thing that you did. And it's, I mean, that was, that was the main purpose of it because I mean, what you did was awesome. It was like a really beneficial thing for the music scene, but you know, I, I do want to like get into a little bit of, you know, what you're doing. Cause I know, I know you're doing stand up and stuff like that. So to kind of like segue that gap a little bit, like what sorts of things do you think that like, you learned in your time as a promoter, booker, doing fans for bands. Has any of that like helped your like journey on like the stand-up comedy gig? Um, I would definitely say the work ethic uh, translates a little bit better because I feel like as a promoter, um, I was only ever I wasn't I was never the artist. I was just the appreciator of the art, and so. Um, I mean, I'm never going to beat myself up for doing pre-sales and, you know, making bands sell tickets. But when bands used to, you know, always 
ask me like, why are we not getting paid at all for this show? Or why is this not happening? Or why is this not happening? Um, I never really took a big consideration of it because I was never in their shoes. And I think as an artist now who's actually investing my own free time into coming up with these jokes and practicing my performance and going to all these open mics and all these gigs that are unpaid just for the hell of it, um, or just, you know, to practice and, and get my stuff down and get it tight. I think that I kind of see it in a different light now. Like on one end, on one end, I'm more than happy to do all these free shows and hustle my ass off because, you know, I understand that's part of the game. I mean, no one just gets found. Like you have to, you do have to build a following. And I mean, I am a of the idea of making a name locally and people recognizing who I am and wanting to see my sets. So that way, when I do pick a paid show or I do pick a paid event, I kind of can get people to actually want to come to my show. And I practice every, I treat every open mic like it's a performance. So I think that's one thing that translated really well was just knowing like, hey, I've put people in this position where they had a hustle as the opener band just so they could open for someone cool. Um, so now it's kind of like my turn. It's almost like a full circle experience. Like, you know, and I'm, and I'm very comfortable with that because that's, you know, I think that's just the way the entertainment industry works. But as yeah. far as getting paid goes and getting onto these shows that you can make money off of, I also feel like I have a strategy behind it as well because kind of like what you guys are saying, when you're picking the shows that you're selling these tickets for, you do want to be selective. You, do want, you don't want to do five shows in one month. You want it to be like shows that matter and you want people to want to come out. So um, I will pick a showcase once every month or two where, I mean, I'm not required to sell any amount, but I always try to make it a goal to bring about 15 to 20 people out to the events that I do. Um, and so that way when they see it, they can talk about how good it was and get more people to come next time. And, uh, so, I mean, I've never been paid more than like 20, 30 bucks in a beer tab, but I mean, when you do get these paid events, you are doing more time, like 10 to 15 minutes, you are opening for a national act. So I feel like how the under how many minutes do you have, what was that? How many, how many minutes do you have, uh, like as far as content goes? Uh, if I were to, if I were to really put it all together and practice it and get it tight, I could probably perform about 30 to 40 minutes at this point. That's pretty good. Oh, Kevin Hart in that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, on a quick side note, not trying to be that guy. I actually need to hop off in about five minutes. Just put it out there. You can cut this shit out. All right. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, fellas. I got to help out my homie. It's a little important. No, you're good. You're good. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, that's cool. So, you have uh, you have 30 minutes. That, that's or, you know, 30, 40 minutes. I mean, that's that's actually, like, really solid. How, how long did it take for you to, uh, like, get that much together? Um, I'd say I've been consistently performing since last April. So, it's been, like, a year and a half of, you know, investing at least you know one or like one to three days a week of performing and just living life and stuff i mean a lot of it comes from just life experiences 
that are awkward and weird and terrible and bad and amazing. Um, like tonight was, I'm, I don't know how I'm going to turn it into a joke yet, but I was, I played poker at a strip club and, um, I, while I was at the strip club, one of the strippers came up to me, one of the girls that I, I had actually been looking at her a couple times and, you know, she definitely saw me looking at her. And so at one point she approached me and I was like, Oh shit, man, she's going to try to get a dance. <laughs> and I was like really worried. Cause I was like, I don't have the money to be doing dances right now, but she had actually recognized me from comedy and was like, telling me how I was one of the performers she really enjoyed. And she started talking to me and it was funny cause uh, she was asking when my next show was and wanted to see it. And uh, we were talking and I just started sweating so bad because I thought she was like so cute and she was like just trying to talk to me. And it was like about something I'm comfortable and confident with. And uh, it was like at one point, I mean, at one point I made it, I was like, man, are you hot? And like, obviously she's wearing nothing except like a bra and panties <laughs> and I'm like full out pants and shirt and uh, beanie and sweatshirt on. So, I mean, it made every sense that I was sweating but I was like looking at her like, and I didn't want to make a comment like, of course you're not sweating, you're naked. But it was like, am I, am I just hot or am I nervous? And I, I eventually I was just like, she, I was like, hey, I'm going to head out, you know, I'm going to go perform comedy. But I just feel like there's something in that experience that can be made fun of. So, man, you should have been like, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely hot. I'm down to take off the clothes if you're down to stay with with the motherfucking Mario. What's really good? Yeah, is it cool if I just get down to my? Can we just do that. It seems like that's from... seems like that's the attire in this in this venue. So I just now I feel out of place with all this extra stuff on. Let me let me get down. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that's what I like about awkward moments. There's just so much potential. You can go any route, and uh, it's just a matter of dissecting it and figuring out how you're going to talk about it to people. That's... But Mario's Mario's dick was too strong at the time. Is like, I need to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but, but but that I'm is like, I can't uh, let her see what's happening. <laughs> that I mean that is a cool thing. Like because uh, I mean you know musicians are the same way. Like not necessarily awkward situations, but like creating different ideas from everyday you know cir- circumstances, especially like you know lyrics or whatever. Like you know that that just comes from you know things that happen around you or like maybe you have something in your head, but it's kind of cool that you, it's like, I, I, I've been following stand-up comedy for a while or whatever. Um, and it, it almost does seem like it's the, like, they're very similar styles of writing when it comes to writing lyrics and writing jokes. Like it really does take a lot of like practice and like making things, making sure you word things certain ways to make it like work properly. And, you know, you want to, you know, make sure you're you're punching at the right time and like hitting hitting the right like spots and stuff like that. So I did find that was pretty cool. Like ever since I started, you know, following stand up comedy. Um, do you have any like who who are who are some of your favorites? And then we'll we'll wrap this up. Like short comedians that I look up to. Yeah, yeah. I would, well, that or like, do you like model anything uh, that you do, or do you just kind of do what you do? But I guess both questions. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting because I'm like definitely not uh, as um, calculated as some of the people in the scene. Like some people in the scene know like every they, – they, they, they know comedy the way I knew metal. Like 
like with fans for bands me and matt knew like every band in the world who was coming up at all times like we were always on top of like it was always like waves of like 200 to 300 bands that were unsigned that no one knew about that we were like looking at and uh you know it was interesting because that just made sense to us and um and you would think that i'd be the same way about comedy but with comedy i literally know like way less than most average fans of comedy know like a lot of average fans they like watch netflix specials once a week or once every couple weeks and like even at that rate they're seeing way more comedy than i'm ever watching and uh you know, a lot of people kind of have an idea of who they like and what they are into. And a lot of the comics in the scene know, like, all the guys that they want to open up for that are regional and, you know, doing festivals and stuff. And, like, I don't know. First off, I'm bad with names. I can't remember. You know, I can barely <laughs> remember your last name. You know, let alone mine. Like, sometimes I forget my last name. Um, <laughs> so that's how bad I am with names. So I'm never going to be the guy who knows, like, who's like, yo, dude, Jamie Patel, or I, I don't know. I don't even know if that's a name or not. But <laughs> there's somebody's name that. <laughs> but, but yeah, like, I'm never going to be that guy who, like, is getting stoked on a comedian. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't like certain people's styles and I don't appreciate things that are happening. Like, I know for a fact as that – Jim Carrey was definitely a huge, huge influence of mine. And uh, as much as people give him shit, like I really like Dane Cook style because I'm, I love Dane Cook. I'm just a very animated performer. I'm very, uh, I create scenarios. I'm very like skit driven, a lot of uh, characters. And so I kind of like them for that. Um, I also like Kevin Hart quite a bit, but I would say my comedic idol is definitely the dude from Workaholics. His name's Adam Devine. Dude, yeah. hell yes. He totally reminds me of you, 100%. Yeah, that guy is my comedic idol. I want my life to be more awkward than he ever does on stage. <laughs> and I, want, I, want to be, I want to meet him, and I want to be like so weird that he's like, dude, we have to take a picture because we're both weird. And he'd be like, yo, for real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's how that would go. But, yeah, I mean uh, – I mean that that's pretty cool, and I completely agree with that. But we are we are gonna go ahead and uh, wrap things up here, though. But yo, dude, that conversation was fucking awesome. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, it was very good talking about everything and hearing the insides of fans for bands and your opinions on the scene. And it was cool just to talk to you again. It's been a long time. It has been, and uh, I am actually in the process of moving back to Maryland temporarily in January. So uh, one thing I am looking forward to is the fact that I'm not going to be driving three hours away for concerts. I can actually just head to Baltimore or Silver Spring. So if you guys need some concert buddies, I'm going to be on the lookout <laughs> and, you know, doing some applications for concert buddies. I'll sign up. Let's yeah, concert over. buddies include drinking, getting food to eat, and rocking out. Hell yeah. Easy. Sign me <laughs> All right. So, yeah, man. So thank you so much. Uh, real quick. Uh, we're going to like, uh, I know you sent me your uh, YouTube link. We're going to include that in the show notes. Um, we got my man Mario Treviso in the house. Thank you again. This has been Inside the Unsigned. Thank you guys for listening to us. Again, we're av available on Stitcher, Breaker, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all that sort of fun stuff and shortly available on YouTube. 
My name is Ben Jodique. And I'm OG. <laughs> thank you guys so much. Have a good one. Have a good one. Yeah, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. It's been a good time, dude. Hell yeah, man. Thank you, Mario. We'll see you on the flip side. Yeah, check see? out Mario Treviso Comedy on YouTube for comedy and up-and-coming music. And titties. And sometimes that. <laughs> well, if that stripper thing, if that stripper thing goes well, who knows? <laughs> I'll catch y'all later. All right, dude. Peace. Peace.